to being a dad that plays harder than my kids. So after a week that included things like trampoline world and ice skating and, of course, eating too much, I, I'm grateful to be home where I can get some rest and, and wear my sweatpants with a comfort fit waistband. Um, but most importantly, I, I am thankful for you, the church. I am thankful for Grace Community Church, a church that is, is not ashamed of God and that is not ashamed of the Word of God, of the Bible. Um, I'm grateful and thankful for a church where my family can gather with you all and worship. What about you? Why are you here? Notice I didn't underline you. It's not why are you here. It's why are you here? Why do you come to church? Um, there's a, I read an article in the Tulsa World recently about a judge here in Oklahoma um, that occasionally will sentence people to church. Uh, 2014, sad situation, a 17-year-old boy uh, was arrested for vehicular homicide. He was drunk, and his friend in the car died in the accident. And the judge wanted to show grace and mercy to this young man and told him that if you obey all of the requirements of your probation, you can avoid jail. One of those requirements was to go to church on Sunday every Sunday for 10 years. How do you feel about that? I mean, the young man is in church. It's a good thing, right? He's under the authority of Scripture and the pastor in the church. Or is it a bad thing? Uh, does that turn church into a punishment? Is that how you feel sometimes? Is, is church a punishment? When you come, do you feel like you're doing your time for the crime? Um, or are you here because you feel like you have to be here? Somebody made you come, or um, you come out of guilt? Hopefully not. Um, maybe sometimes. Um, or do you come to attend church simply to worship God? Um, are you here because you know he is the sole source of truth, and you want to worship him? Now, from my experience in different churches, um, Many of you all knew I am new here relatively. I've been here six whole months now, almost seven months. Um, but I've had the opportunity to be, uh, have membership at many churches throughout the country. There's a lot of people that identify as being Christian. Um, according to a, a poll in 2014, the Pew Research Center uh, found that 70% of Americans identified as Christian. Uh, that number was down from 78% just a few years earlier, but um, just a few years ago, 70% of people in America said that they were Christian. Uh, but that same year, the Hartford Institute of Religion Research reported that 40% of Americans say they go to church. Um, they dug a little deeper and found out that only about 20% actually did. Um, so 70% identify as Christians, but only 20% go to church regularly. Now, I share these statistics with you not, not, to, not to be legalistic, not to make anybody feel guilty, not to say you're not a true Christian if you don't go to church every week. But I, I share these statistics with you just to challenge you. And I want to challenge you with a few questions. So why are you here? Why do you come to church? Think about that for a minute. Let me go just a little bit further. How does your reason for attending church Reflect your belief about God. And finally, is that reason reflected in your life throughout the week? Do your coworkers on Tuesday morning see that same reason um, when you get a call from your customer and you've lost some sales? Um, 
Thursday afternoon when you're mowing the lawn and the lawnmower breaks? Do your neighbors see your true belief in God? And does your family see what you believe about God throughout the week? Your answer to those questions helps shape how you live out your lives on a daily basis. And I think John is addressing this question in our passage today. We'll be in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Um, Familiar story. This is the the story of Jesus clearing the temple. Um, I don't know if you know this, but this is the first time that Jesus clears the temple. Uh, The other three Gospels uh, tell of a time when Jesus cleared the Gospel near the end of his ministry. Um, But this is at the beginning of his ministry. Um, But I believe he's wrestling with this question, why do you go to church? Um, But before we get into the meat of the passage, John sets the context of the scene here in in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, If you were to look at a map, um, he was actually traveling down from north to south. He was traveling from the area of Galilee down to Jerusalem. Uh, But he would have followed a a valley known as the Jordan Rift. And then he would have had to have climbed a thousand feet up the mountain range, and he would have The scenery would have opened up and he would have been able to look down and see Jerusalem. And then he would have to have gone down into the Kidron Valley and then travel up again to Jerusalem. So he's literally traveling up uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, Don't worry about all the small font up there, but you can see a picture of Jerusalem as it existed during the time of Christ. Um, And that square at the top right there, that is the Temple Mount. Um, So even once he got to Jerusalem, he had to travel up further still to the Temple where he was going to worship for Passover. Now, the temple of Jesus' day, this was not Solomon's temple that he built. That temple was destroyed by the, by the Babylonians, and the nation was carried off. When the nation returned, the exiles returned from Babylon, um, the temple was rebuilt. Um, and then about 20 B.C., Herod the Great went about enlarging the temple grounds um, and adding on. And this reconstruction was still going on during the time of Jesus. Um, but this is basically what it would have looked like there, the temple in the middle um, with those wide-open courtyards on the sides. Those are known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. Um, and so Jesus was going there to celebrate the Passover. What they were celebrating was the time back in Exodus when God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so once a year, they would gather together um, and celebrate this event. So they would have one day for Passover and then the rest of the week for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, Now, upon his arrival, uh, Jesus would have gone to the temple to worship on Passover. Um, And what he would have seen is a mass of people, because everyone was required to go. Um, All males were required to go and worship, and I'm assuming they brought their families along with them, and they were there to worship. So the place was packed, and this, this was a great time if you were a merchant Um, in Jerusalem. This was a good opportunity to make some money because people would travel there from foreign lands and they were required by law um, to bring a sacrifice. Kind of hard to to take all these animals with you when you're traveling so far away. So the merchants would be there to provide a service. They would sell these animals uh, to the foreigners that had traveled and um, provide this service to them. But it would have all happened there in the court of the Gentiles. Um, Now the, the merchants weren't the only ones. There were also money changers there. Uh, they were there to help foreigners exchange money so that they could pay the temple tax. The law also required that a, 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 all males, 20 and over, pay a half shekel tax to the temple. 
Um, so they would exchange money with a foreigner so that they would be able to pay this tax. But all in all, they were here to worship God. That was the purpose for Passover, to show their thanks and to celebrate the fact that they had been rescued from slavery. But under the chief priests, however, uh, Passover had become merely a means of making money. Um, it had become more just a tradition, something to do once a year, much like many people celebrate Easter and Christmas today, completely removing God from the equation and just celebrating for the fun of it. And that's, that's the context for our passage this morning and, and, and what Jesus would have seen when he arrived here. Now, John's going to give us um, a picture of three different groups of people that Jesus encounters. And sometimes when we want to we understand who we should be or how we should act, we want to look at maybe who we shouldn't be or how we shouldn't act. And that's what John shows us here today in this passage. Um, he shows us how we should not respond to the Father's heart. So this first view here, this first group that uh, group of people that Jesus addresses are those who are at the temple for selfish gain. Starting in verse 14, it says that he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So it was required in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 7, uh, the people were commanded to seek God. They were commanded to bring sacrifices and rejoice before the Lord. Um, it wasn't something they were supposed to do if it was convenient. Um, if, it, if it fit their schedule. It wasn't something they were to do if, if their neighbors were going or if they heard the funny priest was delivering the message that time or, or if it wasn't their year to go to the in-laws. They were commanded to go every year and to celebrate. And I've already mentioned that the merchants and the money changers, they were there for a legitimate reason. It was just impractical for, for foreigners to come all the way to Israel and to worship, and to bring all of their sacrifices, and to have the right money. So the merchants and the money, make, or the money changers um, were there for legitimate reasons. Um, but what Jesus would have seen was, I believe, would have been just utter chaos there on the temple grounds. Um, if, you've, if you've been to Israel, if you've been to Jerusalem, I want you to picture those streets lined with merchant shops. Um, those would have all been up here um, with about maybe 100 times more people. Because as I said, everybody was required to go. If you have not been to Jerusalem and seen that scene, just picture a Black Friday sale. Um, when blenders are on sale for $7.99 and it's the must-have item of the year. Um, except with the smell of livestock and everything that goes along with that. Um, instead of sales and, and buy one, get ones, uh, you had to pay inflated prices. You see, the merchants knew that, that they had a corner on the market. They had a monopoly. Uh, they knew that they could charge exorbitant prices for what they were selling because the people had to buy these things for their sacrifices. Um, and on top of that, there was probably some profit sharing going on amongst the, the priests because the priests had to certify the animals as clean before they could be sacrificed. So it was real simple for a priest to deem it unclean and point them over to the, to the local merchant to buy something at an inflated price. And they weren't the only ones. The money changers also had a monopoly. They had a corner on the market. 
they knew that foreigners were coming with, with the wrong kind of money. And in order to pay the tax, which was requ required by law, they would have to exchange their money. And of course, a, a steep percentage went along with that also. So both groups were there for legitimate reasons, um, but their motives were selfish. And, and this, is, this is part of what upset Jesus. The other part that upset him um, was just coming up onto the, the Temple Mount and seeing that it was, it was pretty much impossible to worship God. Um, it was utter chaos up there. And the court of the Gentiles, this is where um, Gentile believers would come to, to worship. Uh, I believe you know, the Jewish believers who were born into the nation of Israel could go into the, to the outer court there around the temple and worship. But the Gentile believers had to stay outside of that, the, the temple area. But how are they supposed to worship with this market going on and the noise and the animals and, and all of the people up there? The area designated for worship of God had been taken over by people who had no other reason to be there than to make money. So worshiping would have been completely impossible. Um, think about how some of you all react when you hear a baby cry in here. Oh my goodness. My first reaction is to look around and see everybody else's response. Some people smile because they understand and they've been there. Some people are kind of a little twitchy. Uh, my favorite reactions are those that try to figure out who it is. Have you seen some of those? I've learned some things from you. There's a thing called the pencil drop. You drop the pencil and you kind of turn and look. Uh -uh. There's the whisper. What did he say? And then there's the stiff neck. That's just when a baby cries. Or when somebody gets up to leave the bathroom. We completely lose focus of worshiping God and why we're here. But imagine this scene. Hopefully that helps you to understand just a little bit why Jesus was so upset. He came to the temple knowing that that was supposed to be a place of worship, but it had been, been taken over by the selfishness of man. So the ceremonial system was running well, but where did he see people loving God and their neighbors with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind? Now, if we gave Jesus an opportunity, would he do this in our church? Now, maybe biased, I'm going to say no. Um, but I don't think um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider the possibility. Because um, aren't we the same sometimes? Um, don't we come for, to church for what we can get rather than what we can give? Don't we sometimes come just to be served and not to serve? Um, as a church, I, I know that we want to be a place where you can come and be transformed by the power of God and experience life change that comes from God through Jesus Christ. But we also want to be a church where you can serve. Um, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, we want you to be a church where you can work out the salvation that you have internally, to work out that salvation in service. Um, just as Christ came to serve and not to be served, as Christians, we want to follow that example and serve. Now, selfish desires go with selfish expectations because they are not founded on truth. Um, the next group that Christ confronts are those with unfounded expectations. Here in verse 18, the Jews said, then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy the temple, and in three days, I'm on the wrong page, aren't I? In three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, 
and you'll raise it up in three days? But of course, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the scene shifts here from the merchants and the money changers uh, to the Jewish leaders confronting Jesus and wanting a sign um, for his authority, wanting to know why he thought he could, he could say these things and do these things. And they were wanting to control the situation. So the Jews demanded a sign, and, and this wouldn't be the first and only time that they dis- demanded a sign from Christ. They were a, a constant pain in his neck, so to speak. Uh, because they just could not believe the things that he was saying. Um, In their hard-hearted unbelief, the Jewish leaders repeatedly asked for such signs. Um, But but isn't it ironic that they were asking for signs? They had this preconceived notion that the Messiah was this all-powerful king. And here he is displaying strength and authority in the temple of God, and they completely ignore it. They completely deny that which they are seeing right in front of their eyes. Um, and though no one understood it at the time, there was no doubt later about what he meant when he said he was gonna, this temple would be destroyed and he would rebuild it in three days. Um, his resurrection from the grave would be the ultimate sign of his claims. But the Jews believed in a Messiah, but Jesus did not fit that model, that image that they had in their minds. Um, now the Jewish nation had a history of looking to the world um, for leadership. They started out in their their early history as a theocracy. God was their king. They looked to God as their king and there was no earthly ruler. But then they got to noticing, you know, these other nations, they have a king. That's that's pretty cool. They saw the king as as, as this position of of power, um, of wealth, and and, and even as as a position of fame. Um, And so they wanted this for themselves and they asked God for it and he agreed. And they started down this path of looking to worldly success and power um, as their model for what the Messiah would look like. So when it came to interpreting the prophecies regarding God's Messiah that would bring peace and salvation, they interpreted this to mean a a powerful God-King instead of a a Messiah that would come and reign in the hearts of people. Uh, They were looking for a conquering King rather than a King that would come and serve the people through sacrifice. Um, now, they, they, they took their concept of a, a Messiah from scriptures, um, but they didn't look at the totality of scripture. Some of those references, and this is not an exhaustive list, this is just a few scriptures that they point to as what they were looking for in a Messiah. Um, they were looking for one that would rule with strength, uh, one that would execute justice and righteousness in the land. They were also looking for uh, one that would personally return the nation to its promised land. Uh, Jeremiah 33 says, I will restore the fortunes of my people, uh, that is Israel and Judah. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. They were looking for somebody that would establish a central world government. Um, The law would go forth from Jerusalem and the nations would be judged by the Messiah there. Now this is truth, this is in the Bible. It's not really part of God's plan to do it this way, was it? for the Messiah to come in and, and immediately take over. Um, his plan was to bring peace through sacrifice, not through strength. Um, now the nations will be eventually judged by the Messiah, but the time was not now. 
So they overlooked some passages about the coming Messiah, a Messiah that would be sacrificed, that would die for the sins of the people and be resurrected. Um, They ignored passages about a willing sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, we have types, um, types that, that point to what the Messiah would one day do when he came. And so we see this willing sacrifice in the story of Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, we also see the, the, the Passover lamb as our Messiah in the, in the story of the Exodus as the people were saved when they painted the blood of the sacrificial lamb above the doorpost, yet the firstborn of the people of Egypt were sacrificed. And the Messiah would be forsaken and pierced, but vindicated. Um, one of the prophetic Psalms, Psalms 22, points to this fact. The complete, that, that didn't fit their model. Passages like this did not fit their model of this powerful reigning king. Um, so that didn't fit into their image, and it's not what they looked for. And that's, that's not even talking about some of the specific passages. Again, these aren't, um, these aren't all the passages, but just to give you an idea, they, they completely ignored the facts that Jesus fulfilled. Um, the fact that he would be pre, uh, preceded by a messenger. That was John the Baptist, we know now. Um, you know, that he would be born to a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, um, or even the exact price, the 30 pieces of silver that Jesus would be betrayed for. They completely set all that aside because they just could not look at the totality of Scripture and believe that Jesus was this Messiah that they had been waiting for. So the Jewish leaders failed to see the true Messiah. Even his own disciples failed to fully understand the fact that he was going to suffer and die and be resurrected. Um, Even though they had the Old Testament scriptures and they knew what it said about who the Messiah would be, they completely missed it because of these preconceived notions. You see, his disciples just, they didn't want him to die, so they couldn't believe that he was going to die as a sacrifice. Um, So church, we need to build our expectations from the total truth of scripture. Um, Now, this is hard because we're blinded. We're blinded uh, by the world, by governments, by religions, even by idols. Um, You may know that several of us had the opportunity to go to Cuba last month and and do some door-to-door evangelism. And while we were there, we we see that the minds of some of the Cubans are blinded by a religion called Santeria. It's kind of this mix between Haitian voodoo and Catholicism, if you can wrap your mind around what that might look like. So we would go to these homes, and we would talk to these people, and they would say, sure, we, we, we've heard of Jesus Christ. Sure, we, we believe in Jesus Christ. But you could look around their homes and see the idols that they pray to, and you get this, this understanding that they don't completely believe in the total picture of Jesus Christ and who he really is because they're blinded by their idols, by their religion. We have our own idols here, don't we? Maybe not a physical statue that you kneel down and worship to, but we, we, we spend more time and, and more energy focusing on jobs and career and, and wealth and popularity and fame. And, and Christians, we're not immune to that. That's how the world operates, and, and we see it all around us when we fall into that trap too. Um, but selfishness and outright denial... Um, are not the only hazards that result from a lack of faith. Uh, all too often we place our faith in things that will, that will end rather than God who is eternal, rather than in God who, who was and is and will forever be. So this third group that Jesus encounters, um, 
There are those with shallow and superficial belief. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, unlike the other two groups, this group isn't being outright scolded. Um, it says that they did believe, but what did they believe in? The passage said that they trusted him. Um, they trusted and they believed that he was powerful. They believed that he performed miracles. Um, and this display of power, they believed that, well, he must be from God. But they did not fully commit to him as Messiah. They did not fully believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, Jesus, however, was not satisfied with this superficial faith, even though it appeared genuine on their part. Uh, he didn't trust, entrust himself to those who had professed belief, um, because they, they only did so on the basis of miracles, only because of what they witnessed and what they saw. They saw these acts, and so they said they believed. Um, but Jesus, having supernatural knowledge, he sees into the hearts of man, and he knows the truth. We see this in the Old Testament when God sent Samuel to anoint David as king. Um, he said, go and look for this new king. But don't look at the outward appearance of man, for God sees what's in the heart and knows the truth. Um, we also see it in the New Testament. The next uh, couple of chapters here in John, we'll see that God knows the, the needs that Nicodemus has. And when Jesus encounters the, the Samaritan woman at the well... He knows about her past before she even says anything. Um, and because of this, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Another way to say this is that though they believed in Jesus, he did not believe in them. He did not have faith in their faith. Um, now, I don't know if it's just human nature to need proof or if it, it's just us here in the U.S. I don't know why Missouri gets tagged with the the show me state logo, because we all tend to be like that, don't we? We need a little bit of proof in different things. Uh, for example, pretend like you're um, going into a stranger's home, and the stranger offers you a chair, and as you're going to the chair, you notice a broken chair in the corner that looks exactly like the chair that you're getting ready to sit in. Do you rush over to your chair and just throw your full weight into that chair? Or do you get a little cautious and you just ease into the chair one pound at a time, hoping that it doesn't break? And once you do get fully into the chair, do you still feel confident enough to shift your weight around and get comfortable? Or say when you're going over to this chair, you, you look at the, the, the person that's offering it to you and you point to the broken one. And they say, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Go ahead. Just, just sit on down. Um, you still doubt that chair. And you even doubt this person just a little bit because you've got evidence in the corner that you've got proof that the, this chair may not hold you. Um, so, so we don't fully trust our host. And how should this make the host feel? Um, they want to, to take their word um, just because they said so, just because they said, trust me, it's okay. All too often, we want proof from Jesus. Um, 
these people, they said they believed, but it was only because of what they had seen. Uh, these, these couple of verses here, 23 through 25, assures us that Jesus knows what is going inside of us and our churches. Uh, we cannot rest thinking that his anger was, was only for those people at the temple. Um, he knows us. <clears throat> he knows our minds. He knows our hearts. He knows if our worship is genuine. He knows if we are here to serve him or to be served ourselves. And he knows if our belief is true. Now, the inclusion of this group, like the other two, shows that true faith goes beyond deeper uh, or goes much deeper than merely believing in what one sees. Um, all three groups believed in what they saw, whether it was the money or just the partial uh, scriptures in the law or, or the miracles. But true faith must move beyond that which is seen. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Excuse me. <coughs> says this, says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. So we see here that the faith is, is more than just seeing. And we're given a list of wit witnesses in the rest of chapter 11. People like Enoch, um, simply because of his faith, simply because he pleased God, he was taken up into heaven. Um, Abraham and Sarah, uh, they believed and it was credited to them as, as, as righteousness. Uh, Sarah saw God as faithful. And all of this without seeing the covenant promise that God made to them fulfilled. Uh, that happened many years later after they were gone. Yet they believed and they were faithful. Uh, Moses looked forward to the reward of the Messiah. Yet he didn't even get to go into the promised land. Um, Hebrews goes on with stories about the, the faithfulness of Joshua and Rahab and Samuel and David. Um, and as the author of Hebrews says, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. That requires faith, doesn't it? Because we can't physically see him now. Um, but we must look to him and not ourselves and definitely not to just proof. It requires faith. Now, there are more examples of faithful believers than just are in the Bible. Um, as I mentioned, our trip to Cuba earlier, these two gentlemen on the right, um, uh, in fact, the one on the far right is a pastor in one of the cities. His name is Jorge, and the gentleman with him in the white shirt is a missionary that lives out in one of the rural communities. Um, and we encountered dozens of believers like these guys that, that are already serving faithfully um, in a country where the government treats them as foreigners because of their faith. Um, but we were there a month after the hurricane went across the north side of Cuba and took out homes and farms and vegetation. And these men were still, and, and their churches are still serving faithfully. In fact, you see the house there on the left um, the morning after the storm, and we met two people that had to do this. He had to go out the morning after the storm hit and go as far as 200 yards away to find the pieces of his home. And he had to carry them back by himself uh, before the thieves came and took what was remaining. Um, and then he had to rebuild this home by himself. And, and these things don't go together like Legos. Um, there's no going to Lowe's and buying a box of, of nails. He had to find the nails too. In fact, when we got there, he was straightening nails out to finish off the construction of his building. Um, and, and that is a true 
true picture of faithfulness because I, I don't know that he had to do that. Um, he could have returned to whatever city he was from, moved in with his family, and said, this is too hard. But his faithfulness was in God and without proof. Um, that was his home, but homes there have to double as churches. So he was there to plant a church, and he did so faithfully, even though it, it would seem impossible to you or me. Church, we are called to go beyond sight and simply have faith in Jesus. Um, our passage this morning asks uh, that, we, that we, um, we look with some care at the life of our own religious house. It asks us to imagine what would happen if Jesus would come and visit us today. Um, would, he, would he be upset and outraged uh, by what he sees, by people squabbling about this, that, or the other, instead of focusing on worshiping the true Messiah, the true God? Um, the three types of people John tells us about fail to fully commit to Jesus Christ, the true and promised Messiah. And this happens to us today as well. Um, we're humans. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and we will struggle the rest of our lives here on earth uh, with the temptation um, and the desire to be served rather than to serve, this, this temptation of entitlement that we've done enough and we deserve certain things. Um, now, I hope that before you start thinking about the other people that this applies to, that you take a sincere look at your own lives. Um, We've all been guilty of living like one of these groups, um, and, and I'm willing to bet from, from time to time we allow ourselves to slip back in. Um, so why do you come to church? Um, is it because you're selfish and you're just looking for something for yourself? We're there from time to time, but at some point we need to grow out of that. Or maybe you're just following false expectations. You've created this, this image in your mind about what church should be or, or what you should get from it. Um, that, but that probably often ends in disappointment um, because we're not looking to God. Uh, we're, we are to be here to worship the creator God rather than creating a God that we're comfortable with. Are you blinded by sight? Are you here looking for something that is special and comfortable, um, appealing, um, are you here because you know in your heart that God is the only source of truth? Um, I hope that you'll take some time to consider this passage and my feeble words this week and, and examine your own life. And I, I'd ask if, if you're willing to apply this passage that you do three things. Um, first, I ask, I ask you to ask God to show you how you can focus more on serving others and less on serving yourself. Um, ask him to help you put others before yourself in every relationship that you have. That goes with your relationship with God. He should always come first. Um, but it's the same in our marriages and with our children, with our coworkers and our friends. Um, seek to put that other person first in your life. Second, I ask that you spend, as you spend time in God's word, that does not count as one of the three. You're, you're already doing that, right? Um, as you spend time in God's word, uh, approach the Bible with an open mind. Uh, don't come with this preconceived image of what you think God is about. As you read the word this week, I want you to look and see what God says about himself. And finally, um, in order to move beyond superficial Christianity, I ask that you actually do those first two things. Um, 
and then share with somebody what you've learned. Um, whether it's a spouse, whether it's your small group, whether you want to send me an email. Uh, moms, if you've got a small baby at home, tell them. At least you're getting in this practice of verbalizing that which you've learned. Uh, let's close in prayer. Um, and then Michael will come up with some announcements. Lord, I thank you for this church and for the sacrifice you made for us. As the temple of your Holy Spirit, I uh, just ask that you help us to make decisions based on eternity and not this temporal life. And, and Holy Spirit, we look to your leadership. Convict us when we fail you and, and give us gracious hearts that long to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.